0: everyone and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I'm your co-host TJ. And Bridget. And what are we talking about this week, Bridget?
1: <laughs> you forgot already? Yeah. We are talking about uh, <laughs> season three, number 17, Simon Says, Color Me Dead.
0: Oh, right. That is a terrible title and I hate it. But <laughs>
1: Oh, you hate it? I think it's kind of cute. But actually, there's no like, it's just because a character's name is Simon. Right. Like, there's no, like, people copying each other, Simon says.
0: I know. It's like, it's a pun in search of an, of an episode title.
1: And it makes you wonder, like, did they come up with the episode title? And then they're like, well, let's name the character Simon. Or had they written the episode and they were scrounging for a title? I mean, I'm guessing the latter, if I'm being quite honest. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah. that's
0: What's a pun that we can use that involves Simon?
1: <laughs> you know what? And also, I think the whole idea of, like, the um, the beloved painter, Mm-hmm. who dies and then what's going to happen to his work and his widow like we already saw that in the Caesar Romero episode which was arguably way better because it had Caesar Romero and it was on an island in the Mediterranean
0: but on the other hand we do have Cabot Cove which it's always a pleasure to revisit as we know I love the Cabot Cove episodes and I really did like this one you know not least because as we're going to talk about we get a little more insight into Jessica as a person and all that kind of good stuff so, but maybe before we do all that, we should give a brief episode summary so, you know, our listeners know what was going on.
1: Well, so essentially, uh, Jessica has a painter friend, Simon, who invites her over for a dinner party. He announces that he's going to take his wife on this amazing honeymoon, and that night he's found dead. Meanwhile, there's a sort of poor lady and her son who are in town and somehow entangled with all of this, and that woman gets arrested, and Amos has to babysit the kid, and it's very cute, and – um, Of course, she had nothing to do with it because she's like a pure-blooded, innocent, poor woman, which is a trope that I think we should talk about. Uh, And the one who did it was Liz the Prostitute from Murder by Appointment Only, the Lila Lee episode, who's now playing some hoity-toity Boston lady who spends her weekends in Cabot Cove. So one of the things I like about this teach is we actually learn a little bit more about the makeup of Cabot Cove because we see that there's lots of people from like Boston and other cosmopolitan places who have their like weekend homes here.
0: Not an uncommon phenomenon, you know, certainly, you know, over the last several decades as we've seen the expatriation of people from big cities to smaller communities in like Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, like that happens pretty often. So it's nice to see that reflected in Murder, She Wrote. Mm -hmm. And what do we think about the artist himself? I actually found him to be a really fascinating figure. It's always kind of interesting the kind of people that live in Cabot Cove who achieve some level of fame. Like a few episodes ago, we had like the famous magnates that sort of, you know, have the estate on the edge of town. And now we have a famous artist whose work gets a lot of attention. And apparently, according to the art dealer, who's a minor character, commands like six or seven figures from rock stars. So, you know, clearly, this guy's a big deal.
1: I mean, he's selling paintings for millions of dollars. So he's kind of a big deal. But we actually, I mean, I think we just see very little of his work. What we do see is not actually that impressive. Right. And interestingly, it's all figurative and, um, you know, like representational art, which actually doesn't usually sell for as much unless it's old. Um, and I was just listening to this interview on NPR the other day about this, like a guy who made figurative art his whole life and was really angry when like Jackson Pollock sort of took over and and Mark Rothko and, you know, sort of mm-hmm. abstract art um, became more in vogue. And he's, like, 100 years old, and now, like, that's coming back, and he's finally making it as a painter at, like, age 100. I mean, I will
0: be honest. I much prefer representational art. Like, I find abstract art. You like a beautiful
1: landscape? I
0: do like a beautiful landscape. Sign me up for some Winslow Homer. (laughs) Or Bob Ross. I'm very pedestrian in my art tastes, despite my snide comments about the book version of Murder, She Wrote, that we – discussed oh i see months ago. i
1: see so we're snobby about our murder mystery fiction we don't like it to be workmanship i believe is the exact word that you use
0: like is what i said work that i will prose. never let you
1: forget but when it comes to art we want pedestrian art
0: that is, I am, mm-hmm. I'm a study in contradiction. I, like so many of us, I contain multitudes <laughs> as far as my artistic taste. I contain
1: multitudes. One of the pieces that we do see, though, is, um, a, he's been doing a study of a woman mm-hmm. and it's her nude painted from the back, but her head is turned slightly looking over her shoulder. And, uh, this is the last piece he worked on and it disappears from his studio and eventually turns up in the town dump, but the face has been slashed out of it. And that's our clue that the person who killed him was actually um, – her name is Carol in this episode, but I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep calling her Liz the Prostitute because I loved her in that role. Mm-hmm. And that she was having an affair with Simon um, and knew that the painting would sort of give it away. So she And she was angry because she found out that Simon was taking his wife on this amazing honeymoon and actually did love his wife. And so she slashed the painting and mm-hmm. then slashed him.
0: Yep, she sure did. Although it remains, I mean, the flashback makes it seem as if it's not entirely purposeful. Like she went there with the intention of destroying yeah. the artwork, and then in her frenzy, yeah. it seems like she might have accidentally struck Simon or accidentally on purpose. You know, it's unclear whether she actually intended the murder. But of course, then she fled and didn't really own up to it. So, her but complicity. you know
1: what she did do though is, um, you can, I think it's very clear that it's her. Like in the dinner party. I, I actually wrote down in my notes, like, have I just seen this episode too many times? I'm having one of those moments. There's some episodes that are just like that. But in the dinner party, when he announces the trip, I mean, we see her face and she's getting real awkward and uncomfortable. And so I think I feel like you can tell there's something isn't right. And then um, as the investigation is proceeding and Irene, the young mother who worked at Simon's house as like the cook and maid um, has been arrested for his murder. Carol, the murderess, to use your term, gets really sort of concerned about what's going to happen to his kid. And she insists her husband find him a boarding school. And I mean, she's like sort of overly concerned in a way that we haven't known her to be that much of a humanitarian yet in this episode. So I think it's very clear. It's like her guilt manifesting itself.
0: I mean, I knew it was either her or Dick Sargent, like, who's, who plays her husband. Like, I knew that it was going to be one of the two of them. And in fact, Jessica at first thinks it's Dick Sargent's character. And then it's like, oh, actually, no, I'm wrong. It's your wife.
1: What did you make of that? Because we don't often see JB doing that, like, accusing the wrong person and having discourse correct.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. And it was, you know, one of those moments where we're like, oh, I guess maybe Jessica isn't infallible. <laughs> as devastating as that can be. But no, I, I thought that it was handled well. And I think that, you know... Lansbury's performance was pretty spot on in that moment. You know, we see the moment of wreck of recognition when she realizes that yeah. she's been mistaken.
1: Can we talk about Lansbury's performance at other points in this episode too? Because um, after Simon dies, you know, I always gripe that this show doesn't do enough with grief because it just kind of can't. Um, but I actually think they do a lovely job with this one. So after Simon dies, it's, you know, it's the next morning. She's just been there for dinner the night before. And she's with Amos and Seth, and they're looking around his studio trying to figure out any clues to his death. And you just see her tearing up, and she's picking up objects and touching them and putting them down. And she has this lovely, like, sort of soliloquy about the value of the objects that your husband leaves behind when he dies. some point, you just, you'll have to figure out what to do with them to put them away or give them away. And it's just, it was so touching, I thought.
0: Yes, I really enjoyed that section, too. And I, you know, I remarked to myself, I was like, we're gonna have to talk about this moment, because it is just so poignant. And we have seen it before we saw it when Jessica was sort of reflecting on the moment when she met Frank behind the scenes at the play. She was
1: imagining painting the sets.
0: Yes. And so I I like these moments, these grace notes, if you will, where we get to see Jessica really grappling and and articulating what it meant to lose Frank after such a long and obviously happy marriage. And I mean, there is something, I think, also philosophical about that, because, you know, as all of us who've dealt with grief in one way or another – there's something talismanic about the objects that belong to our loved ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them you put away just because you don't always need the perpetual reminder of the grief, but some of them you may keep out too, just as a reminder of the shared joy of the life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what this moment gets at is this kind of the many shades and complications that are always entailed with grief, you know, and losing someone that means so much to you.
1: It also, I think, is a bit of clever writing in that it's the moment when she's sort of fumbling around with the lighter. And the lighter, of course, is ultimately the clue to who Mm -hmm. the murderer is that she brings over to the house, um, with Dick Sargent and Liz the Prostitute. And she pretends to spill her drink so she can pretend then to discover the lighter between the couch cushions. And, um, so in that moment, when she's first walking around Simon's studio, we're not supposed to realize it's a clue. We're supposed to be thinking of it as this really sort of touching thing. right? And I love that Amos and Seth just sort of indulge it. They're just letting her have this moment, you know, um, but it was a clue. So I just, it's very clever writing. And I think mm-hmm. there seems to be a calculated effort in season three to give Lansbury more of these little moments to show Jessica reflecting on her past and being sort of thoughtful and nostalgic and and kind of sad about it. Yeah, and
0: also dovetailing with that issue of the good writing, it also neatly sort of comes together with the moment earlier in the episode when she offers the little boy like her bike or Frank's old bike, you know, because we'll explain
1: that to people who might not remember.
0: Right. So she's she has seen the moment when uh, the woman and her son—we'll get to that in a moment—are sort of talking about this bike and they can't afford it, so she decides to take it to them and then sort of offer it up. As payment for him weeding her garden so it doesn't look like charity, which there's a whole really interesting dynamic, which I'll get to in a minute, about the way that small towns sort of grapple with this question of assistance.
1: Well, yeah, because Irene says, we don't take charity and we can't afford to buy it. So we we cannot accept this bike. And then Jessica – I love this moment. Like, this makes me fall in love with Jessica. She goes – Oh, I, I mm-hmm. should have explained myself better. I, I wanted to I wanted to offer this as payment for your son coming over and weeding my garden. You know, she just totally understands the, the delicacy of the situation. Oh, she's so great.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot going on in the moment. And as I said, like the giving away the bike that belongs to Frank, so as I said, dovetails with the later issues of memory and objects and how we sort of have to sometimes give away the things that we hold on to. Yeah. But it's also just really – you know, as a resident of a small town, I I can imagine this conversation and like playing out, I can also imagine it playing out within my own family, because, you know, we didn't grow up with much money, but also that small town sort of honor and pride that you don't accept charity, but working for something like that is much more socially acceptable and acceptable to the individual. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it also is a fascinating sort of I don't know what do we want to call it, like a sociology of Cabot Cove, like understanding the sort of codes mm. of behavior that sort of govern small town America and, you know, that have a particular like salience in these moments.
1: I was really struck by the class divide and how Jessica, as we know, because it's written into the series Bible and we've talked about it on this podcast before, Jessica's sort of able to transgress
0: Mm -hmm. All of the social
1: classes and cliques in Cabot Cove. But she has that moment with Irene. And then, you know, like the next time she sees Irene, Irene is the servant at the dinner party. Right? And And she's referred to um, as the girl. I was just going to say, Simon's wife calls her the girl. And Jessica very pointedly always refers to her as Irene throughout the dinner party. And... Uh, I just it sort of reinforces this like massive divide between these people right, right and there's also that
0: moment when we see Irene and her son at the police station and there's that other neighbor who's like saying all these really horrible things about her yeah. and her son calling them trash, which
1: she calls her which trash. I mean
0: even in the taxonomy of like small towns where you know even if we were to accept the term trash as being legitimate, which I don't, obviously. But even if we were, Irene is not trash. She's just poor. Like,
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, we never see them being, like, Jerry Springer-esque terrible or anything, ex- right? Exactly.
0: Like, they're not, like, you know, out the middle of the street, like, sc- screaming in a mm-hmm. wife-beater t-shirt t- or something. No, you know? she's just a struggling
1: so single mom. Right,
0: exactly. But to a certain kind of, like, quasi Brahmin upper-class person in Cabot Cove, which is laughable, but, you know, would look at such people as being – innately distrustful
1: well it's funny because the woman who calls them that is not anybody special herself she seems quite lower class and crass as well exactly well no one looks
0: down on the lower class like other
1: members of the lower class ah sure (laughs) sure that makes sense and i just want to um put out there while we're still having this conversation that i don't tolerate anyone ever referring to another human being as trash for the record just for the record yes she is quite strident about that in fact it was horrible. Like but, I, mean, I gasped in that moment when that woman said it.
0: Yeah, it is wrenching. It's like the R word yeah. that was used a few, you know, last episode. So it's just really fascinating to me that we get this, you know, really uh, incisive examination of the class politics mm-hmm. of Cabot Cove that we don't always get. Like, But the, because the lines between those with wealth and those without is so sharply drawn, it's just really a fascinating dynamic that we isn't always brought up to the surface in quite this way.
1: Yeah. And I think partly because of bias against uh, lower class and partly just because of opportunity, uh, Irene ultimately gets arrested. And as we said, it it makes for an uncomfortable situation because she is a single mom. She's no no family in town, no friends really in town. Um, And so Jessica tells Amos that she'll take the kid so he doesn't have to go into social services. And then Amos ends up babysitting him and is like trying to teach him how to play football and relive his glory days. Right. And this is another moment where we also see Jessica being like just a really wonderful person Mm -hmm. because Amos is feeding this kid a total load of crap about what a great ball player he used to be. And Jessica kind of rolls with it to help Mm -hmm. Amos's ego. And it's really sweet.
0: And it's also, I mean, you know, as we've said so far in this episode, it's also like a kind of humbling reminder of how precarious the life of poor kids can be. Like if something goes wrong with your parents or whatever, it's not that difficult to slide into the foster care system Mm -hmm. or the orphanage, which is a word that I hardly ever hear anymore. But for a kid like this, that who's, you know, the child of a single parent who doesn't have a support system, like it's only by the grace of God and Jessica Fletcher and Amos that, you know, he's not immediately pushed into the system from which it would be very difficult to get out.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jessica is um, really concerned about Irene and even goes to Dick Sargent's character and asks him if he'll defend Irene, which ultimately is ironic given that, you know, she's asking him to defend someone who's been arrested in place of his own wife.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit then about Irene and her son because like, yeah. that's the other sort of subplot the that comes in. Twist. The, uh, the little plot twist. The little... Glimpse of maternal melodrama, if you will. That's the you know I'm always looking at sort of genre codes that Murder She Wrote indulges in. Because it turns out in the course of the investigation, she's not in fact his biological mother, but in fact she was the very good friend oh, of his biological mother.
1: Oh, who
0: dies in childbirth I, and then?
1: I didn't even realize that until you did air quotes just now.
0: I mean, it's clear they were lesbian lovers,
1: and I think everything is gay. I mean, How they did were clearly I not pick lovers. that up? That one was my out. first
0: thought. I was like, "Oh my god, they're lesbians."
1: How did I not pick that up?
0: I mean, nobody says we were very close, and then takes the kid and then runs off with it. Like, come on now,
1: right? Of course, because they were going to raise the kid together. But this is 1987. She'd have no legal recourse. She's not on the birth certificate. They're not married. So of course, she ran away with the kid.
0: That was my. That was my first
1: thought. Ah, uh, well then. Then why are we saying she's not really his mom? Because then she would really be. His oh mom. no, absolutely. I, I mean, she is actually. I think she still is really his mom because she's the one who's been raising him. But you know what I'm saying, right? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, biologically speaking. But, they t- but I mean, Jessica herself acknowledges that, like, in all the ways that matter.
1: Well, no. I mean, I mean beyond is- that, though. I mean, like, if they were lovers, then she is the mom. Oh, I see. Anyway,
0: I mean, if she didn't, even well, anyway, even if she didn't give birth to him, she's still his mother.
1: So Irene is a big Les, huh?
0: That would be That is my stuff. That is my headcanon.
1: I like that headcanon because then it makes when Amos Amos thinks perhaps the, the portrait of the naked lady was Irene and that she was having an affair with Simon. And Jessica's like, Simon is pretty old. And Amos has like the best line of the episode, which is like, just because there's snow on the roof doesn't mean there's not fire in the hearth, <laughs> which is... <laughs> <laughs> Laugh into your microphone, man. It's funny <laughs> shit.
0: <laughs> I know, but I was going to make out a really guf- loud guffaw, and I didn't want it to, like, break the microphone. <laughs> because it is, it is again, so quintessentially Amos, and so also quintessentially, like, Kabatkovian, like, that sort of homespun, earthy wisdom that <laughs> right. can only come from small-town New Englanders, like – you know, it's it's just pitch perfect. The writers knew exactly what they were doing oh. when they gave Amos that line.
1: Oh my god! I mean, yeah, it, it, that is clear, and it may it just I like I said, it just makes it more interesting to me if I think of Irene as big old Les.
0: I mean, I also think the art dealer is a giant homosexual. Oh well, like, I
1: mean, honey, are we going to talk about that because we're going to talk about Leonard Fry, aren't we?
0: Yes, I would assume. So is it time.
1: I'm it is time patiently waiting, so it's like it's, it's as if Paul
0: Lind and Renee, whatever his name is bougenois, had a kid together. like that's because he kind of looks like Renee, but he, he does. acts like Paul Lind, he does so like
1: he also, I think in the dinner party, his function is very much the function of John Delancey mm-hmm. in the last episode where we saw him mm-hmm. um, being just sort of a feat and saying all the things you're not supposed to say and making everyone laugh, but it's kind of scandalous. Anyway, so he's Simon's art dealer who's come to this impromptu dinner party, and he is played by Leonard Fry, and you guys know him best probably Mm. from game shows and Broadway, but of course I adore him from being Harold in The Boys in the Band. Oh, right. Both on Broadway and in the movie. Of course. Yes, 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 yes. He's Harold. I, so I knew
0: he looked familiar.
1: I love him. And uh, we've talked about it on this podcast before about the number of people in the Boys in the Band, which is a movie about a clique of gay male friends uh, that was made in 1970 and how many of them actually ended up dying of AIDS. And uh, Leonard Fry died of AIDS not long after this episode aired. Oh, wow. That's yeah haunting. At 49. Yeah. So one of his last uh, screen credits.
0: I mean, it's a great screen credit. Like, he really is one of those delightful character actors ah, that just sort of owns so the, the moment. Like, when he's talking about how this scruffy ruffian came into his art <laughs> gallery and he <laughs> kicked him out. Uh, you know, because he made this seven-figure offer on one of Simon's paintings, only to realize that the next morning it was actually some rock star. So rock star. But it's not just that, just like the entire way that he... For lack of a better word, I don't use this pejoratively, minces across the screen. It's just delightful to watch. And I say that as someone who regularly minces, like that is sort of my go-to demeanor. So, you know, I I sympathize with- Mincing, you know, the daintiness of Mincing,
1: like chopping vegetables?
0: No, you've never- how are you a queer person and you've never heard of- You mean
1: like being a minx? No. Like a little foxy little minx?
0: No, that is not at all what I mean. Like you've never heard of the expression of like s- calling someone mincing? No. I can't. I find this incredibly difficult to believe.
1: Okay. We'll circle back to oh, it.
0: I will just give you the di- – because I wanted to find the – diction- Are you looking
1: it up? Yes. Because okay. I wanted yeah. to
0: give you like this precise what I mean. Moving or behaving in an affectedly dainty or delicate way – Typically oh, that used sounds in a man. pretty gay. Exactly, yeah. and it's listed as specifically <laughs> derogatory in the, in the dictionary.
1: Oh uh, well, you and I would never use it in derogatory terms. We no, would we use we it like totally
0: approvingly. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> something that when I, like I said, I am a very mincing person, as I have been reminded many times by my boyfriend. By you know, I'm mincing yeah. and or simpering. Either way, it doesn't matter.
1: Well, simpering is a little less. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> One thing that I love is when uh, Felix, the art dealer. Harold Harold, Leonard is um he's in the studio and Jessica walks in on him and he's signing Simon's names to a bunch of paintings and Jessica isn't she's pretty chill about it although you can tell she's like what the hell is happening uh and he doesn't freak out he's just like listen this guy made these paintings I can't sell them if he didn't sign them we all know he made them so I'm just gonna forge them no big deal
0: I mean, plus he apparently didn't hardly ever sign them anyway, so.
1: I love that. I love that. Yeah. that That's why it reminded me of Delancey, because that seems like so something that John mm-hmm. Delancey, in playing any character in any show ever, yes. would do, right? Well, I just need to sign them so I can sell them for a million dollars. No big deal. Exactly. You
0: know, he's uh, very unapolo- as you say, unapologetic, rather blasé about it, really, when it comes down to it. You gotta admire someone with the hot spot to just kind of roll with <laughs> Basically art fraud. <laughs> Basically art fraud. <laughs> this show does love, love art it. fraud. Like that's something we see again and again yeah, in this. They second. really do. Especially with a men committing art fraud of one form or another. Mm-hmm.
1: It's,
0: There's an essay there for you, Bridget. It, oh, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: You want me to write that essay?
0: Artifice in art, you know, art fraud in, in Murder, She Wrote.
1: Artifice in Murder, She Wrote. Yes. Okay. Listen. So we talked about Leonard Fry, who's amazing. We've mentioned that Anne Dusenberry plays Carol who played, you know, Liz the prostitute from the Lila Lee episode. Should probably, I think, Teach honestly, you keep going back to um, We're Off to Kill the Wizard as like your dreaded Murder, She Wrote show. But mm-hmm. I think I keep revisiting Murder by Appointment Only, the Lila Lee episode in my mind. It's like one of the standouts now.
0: Yeah. We have our touchstones. I haven't mentioned We're Off to Kill the Wizard lately.
1: That's because the writers haven't have been doing our- their job and not pissing you off.
0: Yeah. <laughs> We haven't had an arcane piece of technology (laughs) that doesn't make any sense to a non-tech person.
1: Then we have Dick Sargent, we said. So Mm -hmm. he's obviously best known as Darren number two on Bewitched. And so obviously Leonard Fry was gay, but you know, Dick Sargent also came out in 1991.
0: Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of homosexuals in this episode. This is a pretty
1: homo episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, probably come out at some point that Simon was pansexual, don't you think? I mean, he's an artist.
0: It seems like it. I got that vibe from him. He certainly had, you know, maybe young, uh, young acolytes that he had. He gave me very Sondheim vibes. That's what oh, I was reminded no. of. I mean, I know Sondheim wasn't a <laughs> painter, but he had that kind of like, almost bearish appearance that Sondheim adopted later in his life.
1: So before we move away from Dick Sargent, I just want to know, uh, are you Dick Sargent or Dick York? Who's your favorite, Darren?
0: I don't have really strong feelings on Bewitched either way.
1: Really? Um,
0: yeah. I mean, really, the only person I care about in Bewitched is Endora. Oh, okay, okay. I'm I'm team I'm team Endora. That's what I.
1: I was gonna say. Are you turning in your homo card or something? But no, you're just reaffirming it with your love for Endora. Of course, of course, and of course, Poland. Okay. You know. Okay, and then uh, we also have Seth and Amos in this episode.
0: We do. But
1: it's mostly Jessica and Amos.
0: Yeah, Seth is only there to sort of give the time of death and all that stuff. Like, he's not really... One scene. Yeah, it's rather... And there's not even that much bickering between him and Amos, so... It's no, kind it's
1: of awful. A, and, like, did they pay William Wyndham for that? Really? He's in one scene and he has, like, three lines.
0: I know. It was rather of a letdown when it came to, you know, <gasps> mm-hmm. Seth's appearances.
1: Yeah, although we do get a lot of really cute interaction between Jessica and Amos, which knowing that Lansbury didn't like him, it makes it like even more fun to watch.
0: And, and a testament to her sort of grace as a performer that she's willing to like, you know, give it give this very convincing I know performance, even though she clearly couldn't stand this she person. Can't stand him. Yeah, I mean, I can't stand him either. But that's a whole different discussion.
1: That is not. I don't know why you guys don't like Amos. Like, I love Amos Topper. I think he's fantastic.
0: I'm team more all the the way.
1: He's so boring, like, because he's a good sheriff. So he's boring. Amos is funny. I will say that
0: this episode did make me like Amos because he took such a liking to the boy and was so willing to sort of take him under his wing. I think that really reflected. And I mean, to be clear, I don't think Amos is a bad person. And I think that, you know, he's a decent chap but I, and i think this episode really gave me a more positive attitude toward his character
1: i know he's really sweet like you get a sense that he's just he's a good person in this right do we know if amos has children uh apparently not <laughs> although i guess he i mean i would have guess not since- children but i guess he's not married either so anyway just going back to the fact that we have leonard fry and dick sergeant we also have you know the two flaming homo heroes of cabot cove seth and amos
0: we do. What did you say on the uh, on our socials? Was it lovers or
1: lovers or rivals? Which is it? You know, cause why there's not that, both? There's that scene where they're arguing about the time of death. It's like, which is it? That's or is they both
0: much in class? Much like in classic Hollywood, where so much of the sexual tension was buried in the banter of the screwball comedy. So it is with Amos and Seth who navigate their fraught desires for each other through their banter and through their relationship with Jessica. It's the quintessential homosocial triangle.
1: It really is. Yes, it is. It is. If you do any research on like the triangle, uh, this is exactly what Eve Sedgwick was talking about.
0: That's your another, another essay, <laughs> The Homosocial Triangle in Murder, She Like You can be your own <laughs> cottage industry
1: of Murder, She Wrote studies. <laughs> Just keep writing Murder, She Wrote essays. So um, there's a moment where Jessica needs to talk to Amos. So Amos sends the kid to go get two ice cream cones on the bike and bring them back. And we need to talk about this. I
0: also and he's like, I'll be back before they melt. I'm like, kid, you're not gonna I don't know if you know. You're not how gonna I be s-
1: back before they melt, number one. And number two, how on earth do you ride a bicycle carrying two ice cream cones in your hands?
0: I know. I had so many questions. I was like <laughs> I was like, there is no way that, I mean, ice cream melts really fast. Like it's it
1: doesn't make any
0: sense. It's like, I don't, I was like, he's just going to eat the ice cream. That's what's going to happen. He's just going to have to eat it or it's never going to make it back to Amos.
1: I understand that all things considered, it's really inconsequential to the episode, but that I think that's why it pisses me off so much. It's like they literally could have had Amos send him to do anything in the world. They had him go fetch ice cream and bring it back.
0: I know, but the quintessential Americanness of ice cream <laughs> is, I think, that it wins out over... Coherence, narrative coherence. They,
1: then they could have just said, go get yourself an ice cream cone. Right. Like, they could have literally done anything. Yeah. All right. The other thing we need to talk about before we run out of time is fashion, because it's a Cabot episode. Mm-hmm. And although we do see JB rocking this orange pashmina fastened with a brooch at the dinner party, which is described as elegant casual – that's interesting – uh, and also thrown together in the course of one day. So these are like my kind of people. Uh, the rest of the episode is your Cabot Cove basics. And mm-hmm. Lansbury is rocking some mom jeans hardcore. Yes.
0: Well, she also says to Irene, like, don't worry about this picnic. Like, we're all just wearing sweaters and jeans. So clearly, because she invites her to this sort of community picnic.
1: And Which then- was another example of her trying to shepherd Irene into the community, right? Recognizing mm-hmm. that Irene doesn't have any friends. She's like... Can I ask you to volunteer? And it makes it seem as if she's asking a favor from Irene, but what she's really doing is offering Irene the charity of making friends. It's very right. sweet.
0: I mean, you know, I, for all of my complaints about the novel that we read several months ago, <laughs> I think that i that's one thing I did appreciate about it is that it did repeatedly show Jessica's like ability to take under her yeah. wing those who are more socially disadvantaged. Yeah. And I really – really love that about her person like in her character because i just think that is something that we don't always see in
1: popular culture you talk about that a lot actually in real life like outside of our discussions of podcasty academic things that you feel that we're losing a sense of courteousness and grace and those those social graces that seem like kind of dumb but you always are you like those help us get through difficult moments like those are actually important
0: you can thank my boyfriend for that who is brought who has been who is who has evangelized and convinced me that this is the case.
1: Oh, he's good people.
0: He is. We'll have him on, we should have him on as a guest someday. He's very We should. He loves watching murder show with me, so.
1: So speaking of good people, um we mentioned that Irene was a big lesbian who stole her dead wife's baby, uh, and um we never said what happens at the end.
0: Oh right, cuz there is the father who is sort of showed up in town. Who basically says I don't want to ruin my son's life because I'm an ex-con? So what kind of life can he have? He can have a much better life with Irene. It's very—it's all very nineteen forties melodrama or nineteen thirties, nineteen forties melodrama. It's like it
1: really is, yeah. And she's also like, hey, he seems kind of great. I might just date him, and then it'll tie up everything nicely.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just it it felt like a Betty Davis movie from like nineteen thirty seven. Yeah. Like it just was wonderfully put together in that regard. And I'm not sure that's deliberate, but that's what came to mind immediately. Was just the way that you know old school melodrama was very much about self abnegation, parents giving up ch- what they love for mm-hmm. their children. Like it's all very you know maternal slash
1: paternal melodrama. Well, and the best part is that Amos is like, you know, like, I'm legally bound to report that this woman has stolen a baby and is living under an assumed name. Like, what do I do? And Jessica's like, just develop amnesia. Right. It's one of those moments and they let where it you, go. They're just gonna yeah. let this one go.
0: Yeah, which I like. I mean, this happens sometimes that Jessica's like, there's, there's a higher moral truth that she's holding to. Like, yeah. it makes sense in her character because she is deeply moral. So it makes perfect sense that she would be able to Make that exception.
1: I love it. So we really like this episode, huh? Me too. Yeah.
0: We did, yeah. It seems like we really had a lot to say.
1: No? That's seems probably- like a good place.
0: Yeah, it seems like a good place to end. So, Do you
1: know that we wrap up every episode the exact same way? Well, that seems like a good place to stop. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Yeah,
0: there's a there's – a, much like network television, much like the laugh that ends Mortish wrote, <laughs> we're reliable and we – you know what you're getting. Like, we don't need to be artsy-fartsy and fancy. <laughs> we are, you know, a bread and butter podcast. That's the – that's the Cabocat Gazette. I way.
1: like Kai, how Kai Rizdal ends Marketplace when he's always like, We gotta go. It's like the hook the hook is coming to yank us off the stage. Oh, we gotta go.
0: It's true. I can see it over my shoulder now. Or is that Spectre of Death? Anyway, it doesn't matter, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> So for the Cabocat Gazette, I'm Bridget.
0: And I'm TJ. <laughs> and-
1: we'll see you next time.
0: Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.